the work of Christ that he did in his body and that he did by his blood. We thank you for the new covenant that we have, the covenant of the salvation that comes uh, through the work of Christ and not a covenant of works. We thank you, Lord, that we are able to partake of the Lord's body and his blood. We thank you, Lord, that we take it together as partakers of Christ, that as we eat the bread and drink the cup, that we are in communion with Christ, that we are one with him, that we are united uh, with Christ who is our head and who is the head of his church. Father, thank you for this blessed sacrament that you commanded for your church. And as we meet to do it each time, may we always bear the words in mind that are given by the Apostle Paul. Therefore, as often as we eat this bread, and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Now we're going to begin our time of pastoral prayer. After the cups are taken up. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of prayer, for the grace of prayer, for the power of prayer, the efficacy of prayer. Prayer is effective. And Lord, we're not just praying to anyone. We're just not praying to anything. We're not praying to the universe as uh, secularists uh, believe. But Lord, we are praying to the one true God who is blessed forever. We're praying to the God who created the heavens and the earth. Lord, as we read in our responsive reading this morning in Psalm 96, that all the gods of the peoples are idols. For Lord, you made the heavens. That means the idols that we set up in our hearts and in our in our minds and in our in our bodies and in our hands that they don't have the power to create anything. But Lord, only you do. You made the heavens. And because you made the heavens, Lord, honor and majesty are before you. Lord, you are the God who is great and greatly to be praised. You are the one who is to be feared above all gods. But Lord, we live in a culture where man has become God where ideology has become God, where bodily autonomy has become God. Lord, we live in a world, we live in a society, we live in a nation where your name, your rule has been thoroughly rejected. And man has done what Paul says in Romans 1 where we have worshiped uh, creatures more than the creator God who is blessed forever. Lord, our world tells us to, to love ourselves, to forgive ourselves, to esteem ourselves, to, in essence, worship ourselves. That self is the highest attainment 
that uh, actu actualization of self, being our best self. The world calls us to focus on us, and, and we make ourselves out to be gods. We want our names to be uh, great and greatly praised. We want our names to be feared. We want our names to be uh, worshipped and proclaimed. Well, that is what we desire in our sinful hearts. That is what our culture desires. That is what our culture promotes, the rise of the self. But Lord, you have called us to deny ourselves, to, to deny our rights to ourselves, to deny our selfish and, and sinful inclinations, and to take up our cross, the cross of suffering, the cross of shame, the cross of rejection, the cross of ridicule, the the cross of scorn, the, the cross of even death, and to follow you. Well, that is what you have called us to do, to follow you and to worship you, to give glory due your name. Lord, your word calls us to worship you in the beauty of holiness, to tremble before you, to proclaim that the Lord reigns, that the Lord is over all, that the Lord is the sovereign. That the Lord Jehovah God is over all. And Lord, it is because of you that the world is established. Lord, you alone are worthy of worship. And, and as a church this morning, as, as individual members of the living church, and as the living church, Father, we worship you and you alone. We praise and proclaim your name and your name alone. We preach your name and your name alone we don't proclaim the name of another but the name of the one and only true God and Lord I pray for our church as I do every morning that you grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that we cultivate our affections for you more and more and that we not strive to be friends with this world or the things of this world or the ideologies and philosophies and the worldviews of this world that we not try to be friends with the world because Lord your word tells us that friendship of the world is enmity or hostility with God we are in this world we have to live in this world we have to work in this world for Lord, we don't have to be of the world. We don't have to be part of the world, participating in what the world participates in. We are to be unspotted from the world. So, Father, help us to keep ourselves spotted from the world. Help us, Lord, and keep us from being infiltrated to being influenced by the world. Why, Lord? Because the world is passing away. It is, it is fleeting. It is momentary. Lord, your word says that the world is passing away and the fashion thereof. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, back this past week, when people were marching for the rights of the unborn, 
over 500,000 people were there in Washington, D.C., and, and you saw nary a news coverage of that. Because, Lord, we live in a culture of death, a, a culture that, that values and promotes the murdering of babies in the womb. Father, we pray against the industry. We pray against organizations like Planned Parenthood who promote, who promote the murdering of babies. We pray, Lord, against the feminist movements that support it also, and even uh, men who support it, who are cowards. Lord, we pray that abortion clinics across this nation shut down. That, Lord, you crippled their business, that, that you changed the hearts of, of women who are contemplating having their babies uh, murdered. And by your spirit, Lord, send them to uh, crisis pregnancy centers. We have one here in Anniston and, and one in Jacksonville that are, that are working uh, with pregnant moms, providing them with resources and also proclaiming the gospel of Christ to them. We're praying, Lord, that uh, our churches continue to support them in their work and what they're doing and that they're able to save the lives of those precious babies. And again, Lord, we're praying against this industry, this culture of death. We're praying, Lord, that you also turn the hearts of our leaders to you in repentance. Lord, we call them to repentance. We call Joseph Biden, uh, who believes that babies should be murdered in the womb. Vice President Kamala Harris, who believes that babies should be murdered in the womb. Lord, we call them to repentance. Lord, we call you to save them from their sins. Because, Lord, people can't have a changed worldview about abortion until they have a changed heart a conversion, a regeneration of heart to see that all life is precious, not just outside the womb, but inside the womb also. We pray for other leaders in, in Washington, in, in the House and the Senate, who have this same wicked worldview, Father, that, that they are called to repentance also, that they have a change of heart, that they turn away from their sins and turn to the living Christ because Father one day all of them who promote this murder of babies will have to stand before your judgment seat. All of them will have to give an account. Their accounts will come due when they stand before you Father. We pray for all those who are pushing this wickedness to repent, to turn to you and be saved. And Father, we thank you for our sister churches. We've talked about this issue before as brethren. As many of them are addressing this today also, Lord, so I'm not even preaching sermons about it, but Lord, we just thank you uh, that you have uh, churches here in this county, not just our sister churches, but other churches also. 
that are praying for and that are praying against the murder of babies and praying for the abortion movement to continue to flourish, the pro-life movement, rather, to continue to flourish. And that babies are saved from being murdered inside the womb. We pray, Lord, that you continue to uh, look on uh, ABC and Grace Fellowship, Redeemer, Christian Fellowship, Iron City, First Baptist Lionel, and other like-minded churches, Lord, that you continue to bless us as men to lead the flock of God, to be faithful shepherds, to proclaim your gospel truth, to encourage the believers, and that we encourage one another, that we disciple each other, and we continue to proclaim Christ and his gospel. Father, I pray for the preaching of the word this morning as we look at uh, Nehemiah, the fifth chapter, the service compassion, that you fill me with your spirit to preach this text in a way that is pleasing to you, that you send your spirit, Lord, to illuminate the truths that we will hear this morning. Show us your truth, Lord. Show us the compassionate heart of Christ through Nehemiah as a type of Christ. Father, just bless us and Refresh us. Thank you for encouraging us by your word. And Lord, continue to do so this morning as it is preached. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. We're in Nehemiah, the fifth chapter. It's no secret, right? <laughs> we thank the Lord for his word. God is such a great encouragement. I was... Uh, this is confession time, but I was a little discouraged earlier before church started, and I prayed to the Lord to encourage my heart, and he did. The Lord is so good. And uh, when we are discouraged, you know, we, we, we go to the Lord. We don't just wallow in it. And, and I was a little discouraged in, in heart, and, and the Lord heard my prayer, and he encouraged me, and I thank the Lord for gospel encouragement. Whenever you're discouraged, and all of us get discouraged sometimes, you know, pastors, we get discouraged. We have pastoral discouragement for different reasons. But as the psalmist said, the Lord made the heavens. The Lord is, is sovereign, and the Lord encourages us. And we thank the Lord for gospel encouragement. Amen. The Lord is so good. And he is so faithful. And I love the Lord because he lifts us up. Amen. He, he picks us up. How many can testify to that? That the Lord lifts us up when we're discouraged, when we go to him. If we wallow in it, we'll remain discouraged, right? When we go to the Lord, Lord, encourage my heart. I'm discouraged right now. And you can tell the Lord why you're discouraged. And, and over a short period of time, the next thing you know, you'll, you'll, you'll see that he has lifted your your heart, and he has done that uh, with me, and I thank him for it. So, I mean, we're in the fifth chapter of Nehemiah. Uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, as you read through this book, you'll see Nehemiah encountering opposition from without and from within. 
Now he's dealing with the opposition from within. The last chapter, chapter 4, he dealt with the opposition from uh, uh, Sanballat and, and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites. And, and now he's dealing with the opposition from within the people, within the camp, and on how, uh, on how they were oppressing their fellow uh, brothers and sisters. But that's where we are this morning. So it says here. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said with our sons and our daughters we are many and I'm reading from the ESV. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we are borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So you see from the beginning, if you like to underline in your Bible, you see the beginning of verse 2, there were those who said, and then the beginning of verse 3, there were those who also said, and then in verse 4, there were those who said. So you have, you have three issues that are going on among the people. I'm just saying it parenthetically as we read through this passage. But verse 5 says, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And Nehemiah says in first person here, I was very angry when I heard the outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest or usury, as some versions say, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we're able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of the Lord to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore those and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also took out of the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the uh, 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, 
Neither I nor my brothers ate food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Also preserved or rather persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews, and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and uh, every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy for his people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for his people. May the Lord bless the reading of the Holy Scriptures. So, again, they were rebuilding this wall, and, you know, to undertake this task, the people had to take a huge step of faith. Because first they had to leave behind their normal way of life for about two months. So their whole life began to suffer, as we see, uh, because the leading breadwinner was away from home. So all the men went to rebuild the wall, so the women were left to, you know, kind of take care of the home and everything. And those with particularly large families were without food. And so this was a perfect storm that Nehemiah uh, is encountering. There was a famine in the land as it was in those days. You had famines that lasted for a long time. If you go back to uh, the book of Genesis, uh, you know, chapters 37 through 50 chronicle of the life of Joseph in Egypt. And, you know, Joseph had uh, prophesied uh, to Pharaoh that there were going to be seven years of feast and then seven years of famine. Uh, Famines happened a lot in an agrarian culture because you're relying on what? The land, the living of the land. If a, if a drought took place, you're not able to what? Grow grain. Your animals are not able to eat grain, so they kind of starve to death. So what happens? A famine happens. And people have to become more, more frugal. And when that does happen, um, people begin to, to starve. And so the poor families have to sell their possessions. And they had to force their children into slavery, as we uh, just read. They had to force children into slavery to their Jewish brethren to make ends meet. And the reason why this happened was because the, the men who were building the wall were not able uh, to help feed their families. That's why this happened. So an outcry against their condition came forth. A huge outcry. There was trouble. There was a problem. And Charles Fincham said uh, in his commentary in the book of Nehemiah, he said their problems were so serious that even their wives joined them in their complaints. He says this is unusual because in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the women stayed very much in the background. If you read the narratives of Ezra and Nehemiah, you rarely heard uh, anything from the women. But in this context the women cried out so that means something definitely was amiss something definitely was going wrong so there was a threefold problem that uh, they faced and it says in verse two three and four as I uh, emphasized to you all as I was reading the passage the first thing 
The first problem was that the families were very large. And this is my introduction, by the way, and observations on the text. Uh, their families were very large. Okay? And there was not enough grain to go around. What did they say? But there are those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. Okay? They were so big and there was not enough grain to go around. They were being fruitful and multiplying, but the land just was not cooperating with them. The second problem was that they mortgaged their homes and fields to get grain. You see that in verse 3. Those uh, who are mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, and their houses to get grain. So they basically had to sell their house or to, you know, in our sense, take the equity that they had out of their house to go in debt in order to buy land. So they had to mortgage their homes and their fields. Again, this wasn't agrarian culture. Everyone grew their own food. They didn't have plants and factories that and, 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 and Walmarts and grocery stores to go in and buy foods. No, they all had to grow their own food. Every family. That's how they ate. So they had to give up their fields. So you, you get the sense they had to give up a lot. Their, their homes, their field, which is where they got their sustenance from. And then the third problem, we see enumerated in verse 4. That they had to borrow money from their Jewish brethren to pay the royal tax. They had to pay a tax to the king in which they were under at the time. So they had to borrow money in order to do that. So they were in very distressing times. This was a pretty serious condition that these people were in. So the result of all this was that their children were taken into debt slavery. That's what it was called. It says here in verse 5, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. They put them into debt slavery. Now, I'll say this about uh, debt slavery. Temporary debt slavery was allowed under the uh, Mosaic law. In Leviticus uh, 25, uh, the Lord uh, spoke of that. Leviticus 25, uh, verses 39 through 40, uh, say this, If any one of your brethren who dwells uh, by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you should not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was when all debts were uh, canceled. So debt slavery was a thing under the Mosaic Law. But in this case, what was happening here in Nehemiah, it was being abused. So Nehemiah became indignant. He says in verse 6, I was very angry. He was indignant. His anger was kindled because they were taking advantage of their own brethren. He showed the leaders, uh, because what was happening was that these people were abusing debt slavery. They were therefore abusing these children. The weak exploited the strong. And God uh, vehemently was against the weak being oppressed by the strong. That was something that truly angered God. It was one of the reasons uh, for the exile in the first place. 
God had uh, pronounced that against uh, Israel back in Isaiah, the fifth chapter. One of the reasons for the exile was how the poor were being taken advantage of. God says this in Isaiah 5 and 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are its pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold oppression for righteousness, but behold a cry for help. Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field, for there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. These people were celebrating excess, and in doing that, they were oppressing those who were poor. And God said that was one of the reasons why they went into exile. And then also they exacted usury. And usury was basically uh, where they uh, uh, put interest in times of poverty on the people. And God had forbidden that in the Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20, this is what the Lord says about this. So I'm, I'm, I'm reading you all these scriptures to see that these people knew the law. They knew what the law said. But yet they still violated God's law. God says here in Deuteronomy 23, verse 19. He says, you should not charge interest to your brother. Interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. He says, to a foreigner, you may charge interest. But to your brother, you shall not charge interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are going to enter to possess. So God explicitly said, you are not to charge your brother's interest. But what was Nehemiah angry about? Verse 7 at the end. You are exacting interest each from his brother. He was angry because of that. He took counsel against himself. He brought charges against them, against the nobles. These are the people who know better, the ones who, who have money. The nobles were like the wealthy people. And Nehemiah said, you are charging interest against your own brothers. You are in violation of God's word. He says in verse 8, we, as far as we able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nation. So, so, so first of all, we were already sold into captivity for 70 years, and now we're coming back to Jerusalem, and you're selling them into slavery again. That's basically what he was saying. He says, but you even sell your brothers that they might be sold to us. And they were guilty because what was said, they were silent and could not find a word to say. Nehemiah had showed them the irony of their actions. That they're selling their brothers into slavery when they had just come out of slavery. When that nation had just come out of slavery for 70 years, and you're going to sell your own brothers into slavery again? He was showing her that irony. What did they They make and fulfill it? Nehemiah said, ought you not to walk in the fear of the Lord to prevent the tongues of the nations? 
and let us abandon this exacting of interest at the end of verse 10. So they made a vow in verse 12, we will restore and require nothing of them. We will do as you say. And then at the end, Nehemiah spoke of his benevolence to God's people by not using his Jewish brethren for personal gain as those who came before him did. The other governors that came before him did that, but Nehemiah vowed not to do that. So those are just some observations on this text. So our, our big idea is that Nehemiah, who was faced with an internal crisis, hears the cries of God's people. He finds a solution that glorifies God and sets an example that exemplifies Christ. Now these principles are pretty uh, short, so I just want to, in my introduction um, and observations, go basically do an exegesis of the, of the passage so that we can kind of see and capture the gravity of what's taking place in Nehemiah's uh, response to it. So our first principle comes from verse 1. Nehemiah's problem is a cry out to God against the injustice and a plea for redemption. Verse 1 says there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives. This reminds us of the Exodus account in Exodus 2 and in Exodus 3, where it is written uh, by Moses that the enslaved Israelites cried out, to their God, and then God heard them. God told Moses that he hears the cries of his people, that their cries are basically reaching heaven. It said the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. That is Exodus 2 and 23. So this language right here, of them crying out, a great outcry of the people. This kind of harkens back to Israel when they were in Egyptian slavery. This was the typical language of protest under uh, oppression. When they felt that they were being oppressed, they did what? They cried out to God with a loud outcry. The Jews in this passage were feeling the oppression from their circumstances and from their own brethren again just as a reminder the problem was uh, threefold large families that the mortgage their possessions and they had to borrow money and all this became too much for them it's like you know how the saying it rains it pours like that their problems just compounded and you know some people say oh if it's not one thing it's another you know it's like things just started piling up on them to the point where they did what they cried out to God they cried out to God. When overwhelmed, the people of God have him to cry out to for relief. God is always present to listen. When we're overwhelmed, when God's people are overwhelmed, what do we do? We cry out to God. The psalmist says in Psalm 145 and 18, that the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And that is what we see his people doing. These people cry out to God against injustice. And they give a plea to 
God. Their cry was also a cry for redemption for their children from slavery. And again, as I said earlier, debt slavery was allowed under the Mosaic law. And it was a very common practice in the Near East or the Middle East. And just imagine if that was the case now. I don't think a lot of people would be in debt. <laughs> if, you, if you owe someone some money, you know, someone comes and borrows $500 from you. In order for them to pay it back, they have to come and work for you to work that money off. You know, you can charge them, what, $10 an hour. That means they have to work 50 hours in order to pay off that $500. It can be a lot of hours unless you do it all in one week. But that's kind of, you know, that's kind of a simplified version of what debt slavery was at. It, 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 but debt slavery was always meant to be temporary. It wasn't punitive. It wasn't punishment. It was just working off what? Debt. You owe somebody something. You damage something. You do what? You pay it off. That's how the prison system usually works. You know, you're paying your debt to society. You're, you're working off your debt. If you owe restitution, you know, when you're in, in, in jail, you know, you may get a job in jail. And whatever you make from the job goes to, to restitution to, to pay back the family or pay back the state or, you know, pay back whatever. That is kind of what that is. So debt slavery was allowed. It was very common. And individuals would sell themselves and or children into slavery to a creditor to pay off debts. Sometimes they would sometimes they would sell their children. And they were redeemed from slavery when the debt was paid off or after the seventh year. And we see that in, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 15, where, uh, where I read that. Deuteronomy 15 and 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. So it was which, whichever one came first. Either the debt was paid off first or the seventh year came first when that was uh, paid off. And what th this shows the graciousness of God and how he dealt with people that owed, that were in debt, that there was some grace allowed, that it wasn't forced that the person would volunteer to pay off the debt that way or else they would have their wages garnished because that did happen. But then still, even if they didn't pay it off after six years, they will be set free from that debt. That, that, that shows how merciful God is. But what does all this ultimately point to? As sinners, we are slaves to sin. And we are debtors to God for our sins. Let us never forget that. Paul talked about uh, slavery to sin in Romans 6. In fact, the very... Uh, first half of that chapter uh, deals with that. Actually, almost the whole chapter does. He talked about before Christ, we were slaves to sin. He was admonishing the Christian to not be a slave to sin. He says here in uh, Romans 6 and 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Certainly not. Then he goes on to say, in verse 15, what then shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that 
to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey. You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So you can either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. He said, but God be thanked that though you were, though you were slaves to sin, Christian, yet you obey from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin or from the slavery of sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So again, Paul talked about our slavery to sin in Romans 6. The only means for our redemption from the slavery of sin, the only means for a sinner's redemption from the slavery of sin and for our sin that to be paid is through Christ. Because Christ freed us from the slavery of sin. He freed us from the tyranny of sin. And he redeemed us by purchasing our salvation. Unbelievers need one thing. They need to be set free from sin. And they cannot do it themselves. They can't do it by being a good person. They can't do it by giving to the poor or feeding the hungry or clothing the naked. They can't do it by helping the old lady across the street. They can't do it by opening doors for people. They can't do it by living their best life now. They can only do it by salvation in and through Christ. Christ is the only one who can set them free from the slavery of sin and the tyranny of sin. He is the only one who can redeem them, who can purchase them, who did purchase them. He purchased that salvation. They're neglecting it. He paid that debt. But while they are rejecting Christ, they are still under that sentence of death. So we see this passage right here. We see this, this debt slavery. We can see that it is not permanent. It is temporary. That they're not always slaves. But it's a picture of our slavery to sin and our debt to God. That's what the whole debt slavery was about. It was a picture of our debt. Sin is slavery. Sin is slavery. And sin is a cruel slave master. Sin never shows mercy. Sin doesn't show grace. I said this before, I said this a few weeks ago, sin doesn't relent, it doesn't give up. Sin continues to pursue. But thank God for Jesus Christ that our redemption from slavery has been provided through him. These people had a plea for redemption and they found it. We have a plea for redemption and it is found in Christ. Amen. Second principle, Nehemiah's solution is a return to the fear of the Lord and a vow to follow him. Verse 9, look at what Nehemiah said. Shall you not walk in the fear of 
the Lord? Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Nehemiah challenged them because their treatment of their brothers demonstrated their lack of the fear of God. And it brought reproach or insult to his name. Because look at what he said. Ought you not to walk in the fear of the Lord? This is verse 9, the middle part. To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. Don't you know these other nations are going to taunt you because you're abusing your own brothers? Don't you not fear God enough that you care about his name? That's what basically what he's asking him. His solution is a return to the fear of the Lord. If we don't fear God, guess what? We're going to abuse man. If we don't fear God, we're going to mistreat our Christian brothers and sisters. Because we don't fear the God whom they serve. And Nehemiah didn't put any punches in dealing with their sin. Verse 10, he says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exchanging of interest. He caused them to the fear of the Lord. And then he called them to return everything back to their debtors. He says, verse 11, return to them. I had that underlined in my Bible. First he said in verse 10, let us abandon. Then he says, return to them this very day their fields, their wine, and the oil that you have been exacting from them. Give everything back to them. If you notice here, there's a progression from fearing God to righting a wrong. First says, ought you not to walk in the fear of God? And then once you do that, you begin to right the wrong. And that's the progression that we see here. In order to obey God, we must first return to fearing him. You can't obey God if you don't fear God. Because guess what? If you don't fear God, you can care less about obeying him. People who don't obey God don't fear God. And because they don't fear God, they're not going to obey God. Those who hate God, those who reject God, they don't fear him. Jesus calls us to obey God if we love him. John 15 and 10, if you love me, keep my commandments. So Nehemiah dealt with them. In order to obey God, we must first return to fearing him. That is the call to every Christian. And that is the call to every unbeliever. People say, oh, yeah, there's only one man I fear, and that's God. <laughs> you don't live like it. <laughs> you got unbelievers that say that. There's only, there's only one person I fear, and that's God. Well, you're not obeying God, so you don't fear. Because you fear God, you fear the judgment that you're going to receive from him if you don't repent and believe. <laughs> so, no, you don't truly fear God. You may say that with your mouth, 
but it's not actuated in your heart. Because to fear God means to obey him out of love. And Nehemiah was telling these men that if they loved God, they would obey him and look on their brethren with compassion and return everything back. That's what he was telling them. Let us abandon this exact adventure. Return to them this day. Again, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and all that you have exacted from them. If you love God, guess what? You look on your brother with compassion, and you give everything back to them that you took from them. That's how it looks. That was showing the heart of compassion that Nehemiah had for those who were being oppressed and also for the Lord. And he called them out on it. And so what did they do? They made a vow and they agreed to fulfill it. We see that in verses 12 and 13. They said we will restore and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And they called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. Also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said what? Amen. They agreed. And they praised the Lord. They gave glory to God. And the people did as they had promised. Hey, I would too. This was almost like a curse formula. It was a way of getting commitment out of people. You don't want to be shaken out by the Lord. You know what I mean? So yes, you're going to do that. But that's what Nehemiah did. So they made a, a vow. They agreed to do it and they fulfilled it. So I want to answer this question. What does it mean to fear God? Mainly it means to have a profound reverence and awe for God. That's, that's what it means to fear God. To have a a profound reverence and awe for him. A profound reverence. You you revere God. It is a is is a worshipful fear. It doesn't mean feel like you're scared of God. That's not what fear is. You you reverence him, you you worship him, you you bow the knee to him. And then all for God. Because God is worthy of all. He's worthy of wonder. And that's what it looks like. God told Israel in Deuteronomy 6 and 13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. He said you should not go out to other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. That's to strike fear in them just like that. You worship these other gods, you will be destroyed. That is a worshipful fear of God because he calls them to do what? Worship him and not these other gods. That's how fear looks. You fear God so much that you worship him and him alone and not all these other false gods. That's what fear looks like. 
We worship God and God alone. Just like he told Israel, you worship God. Don't take oaths. You should not go after other gods. Going after means your affections going after them. All your being going after them, chasing after them, longing after them, clinging to, it, to them. That's, that's the picture we get of going after other gods, seeking their approval. Sending all your energy toward them as opposed to the living God. That's what it looks like to worship those gods. And when you do that, you don't fear God. You don't, you don't worship him. You don't have a worshipful reverence of him. So he tells them in Deuteronomy 6 and 13. And Joshua uh, 24 and 14. Joshua says, now, therefore, fear the Lord. And how does that look? So he commands them to fear the Lord. And then he explains what this means. This is Joshua 24 and 14. Listen to what Joshua says here. This is his, his farewell address to the people. He says, now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in Truth. What truth? The truth of God, the truth that has been revealed in his word. That's what when you see the scripture saying in truth, that means in God's truth, in his word, how he has revealed himself. And then he says, listen to this, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord. So, how does fear of God look? Serving him in sincerity and in truth and putting away other gods. There it is again, just as it was said in the book of Deuteronomy. You fear God. You serve him. You put away all the other gods. You put away the idols. That is why we, Paul tells us to, to put away, to put off sin, put off the deeds of the flesh. We have to constantly do that because as John Calvin the reformer said our the human heart is a factory of idols Calvin says that our heart is always manufacturing idols we're always coming up with idols in our heart so we have to constantly put away idols that we come up with and all of us are prone to that. This is an idol right here. This is all of our idols. All of our idols. This and the things that are on it. This is our idol. I got my timer on, by the way, so yeah, that's what you see. But this is our idol right here. This is our idol. We have to constantly deny ourselves. We have to constantly we have to do it every day because we don't fear God enough we fear man some people fear man more than they fear God they worry more about man's opinion man's approval man's acceptance 
more than they care about what God thinks of them. As Christians, our identity in Christ is first and foremost, not our identity in people. Who cares what they think? We're not going to stand before any single person on that great day. The Bible tells us that we will all stand before the judgment seat of who? God. You're not going to be judged by a jury of your peers. You're going to be judged by the one true God who is altogether holy and righteous and who judges righteously. He is the one whom we are to fear. I'm just fleshing out what it means to fear God and what Nehemiah was saying to them. Fear. Fear the Lord. Return to fearing God, saints. Return to fearing God. Return to worshipful reverence of him. That is what he's calling them to do, and that is what God is calling us to do. Job was a man who feared God. He was described as one who who feared him. He was an upright man. It says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. That's a what we call a parallelism. He feared God and he shunned evil. That means he turned away from evil. In contrast, he did what? Fear God. Guess what? As we fear God, we're going to turn away from evil. That's what we see there in that contrast. So anyway, that's what it means to fear God. And that's what Nehemiah was calling them to do. And as they feared God, guess what? They made that vow. Okay, we're going to follow the Lord. And that's what they did. Which leads to our last principle. Nehemiah's example is a picture of the compassionate heart of Christ. We see this in verse 15. He talked about what the former governors did. He said, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily portion 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of what? The fear of God. There it is again. He feared the Lord. So because he feared the Lord, he didn't take advantage of the people as the other governors did. So that means that the other governors didn't what? They didn't fear God. When a man came to Jesus and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And then, you know, the man said, you know, you shall not murder, you know, you shall love your mother and father. You know, he, he laid out all the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said, the first and greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he said, the second one is like it. You shall love your what? Neighbor as yourself. There's a reason why that order is like that. It's not just arbitrary. You know, you hear people say all the time, love your neighbor. You need to love your neighbor. You need to love your neighbor. 
You can't rightly love your neighbor if you don't love God. If you don't love God, you're not going to know how to love your neighbor. You won't. If you don't love God first, the fear of God produces love for God. The love of God produces fear for God. You love God, guess what? You're going to fear him. You're going to worship him. And as you do that, you will be able to rightly love your neighbor. But you can't put one in front of the other. You can't, uh, as my old folks used to say, you can't put the cart before the horse. The horse is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. The cart is love your neighbor as yourself. You have to do the first commandment, the first greatest commandment first, and that is loving the Lord your God. And then the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, as he said, hang all the prophets. All the laws are filled in those two commandments. So you have to love God first. So Nehemiah was saying what? These ones that came before me, they didn't fear God. And because they didn't fear God, guess what? They didn't act right with their neighbors. They laid heavy burdens on the people. And they took from them because they didn't fear God. So as Governor Nehemiah did not take advantage of the people because he feared God. As a servant leader, remember, he's the type of Christ as a servant leader. That's what we see in Nehemiah. You have to be reminded of that. He did not exploit the people for his personal gain. Despite the fact that he could have done it. Nehemiah could have done it. He had a right to do it because well, he was the governor. He had a right to receive from them. Because he was the governor. He had the liberty to do that. He was the governor. Others did it before him. However, Nehemiah had the heart of Christ. He served rather than being served. He had a godly compassion for God's people. That's what we see in him, in this example. This example points to Christ. It says here, when Jesus fed the 5,000, and this is in uh, Matthew's account, Matthew 13. Oh, sorry, Matthew 14. It says, when Jesus went out and saw a great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. He was filled with compassion when he saw those people. That's the compassionate heart of Christ. And then in Matthew 20, the, uh, this is the, uh, one of the funny passages, right, not funny, but it's, it's unintentionally funny. The, the sons of Zebedee um, came to uh, Christ. This is in uh, Matthew, the 20th chapter. Let's read the context right here. Begin at verse 20. 
Uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with their sons, with her sons rather, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he asked her, Jesus asked the lady, what do you wish? Those disciples got jealous. She said to him, grant, these, grant that these two of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. And I add parenthetically, lady, <laughs> are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And speaking of his death. And they said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. They were in their feelings. They were, they were jealous. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your what? Servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your what? Slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to what? Be served. But to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That is what we see pictured in Nehemiah. He came to serve these people. He did not come to exact from them what he could have gotten. Rather, he came to be the servant leader, and that is what we see in Christ. All this points to Christ as the great servant leader. Nehemiah worked alongside the people. He didn't work over them, and this exemplifies Christ, who is our great servant leader, who advocates for us, and he comes alongside us as his brothers. The writer in Hebrew tells us that Christ became like his brethren. He became like us. He condescended himself to become like us. He participated in the sufferings just as we did. Why? So that he could serve us as our high priest. He is not unfamiliar with our sufferings. He became the God-man. He was fully God and fully man. He was fully man in his humanity. He experienced all that humanity experienced. He suffered just as we suffer. He became like his brethren. What a savior. He became like us. He serves us by walking with us through this earthly journey. He serves us as our advocate. The writer tells us that when we sin, this is in 1 John, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He serves us as our attorney. 
That's what an advocate is. An advocate pleads on the behalf of the defendant. We're the defendant. We're the ones who are being charged with sin. But what does Christ do? He defends our righteousness before the Father as our advocate. As Satan accuses the brethren, as Revelation 12 tells us, Satan accuses us. But as he accuses us, guess what? We have an advocate who has never lost a case, who has won all of his cases in defending the saints. As Satan tries to prosecute us, Christ is the greatest defense attorney ever because guess what? He's never lost a case. He serves us as our advocate. He also intercedes for us on our behalf through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But we don't know what to pray, as Paul says. Sometimes we don't know uh, how to pray as we ought. But the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. That is a servant. Christ serves us. He's sitting right now at the right hand of the Father. He's clothed us with his righteousness. And he is serving us as our great Savior, as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king. He's ruling and reigning. He's not a tyrant. He's not a dictator. No, he is a loving king. He is a king who serves. Dictators don't, don't serve people. They want to be served. They want to be worshipped. They try to consolidate all of the power under themselves like our current administration is doing. And like other evil kings and dictators around the world, they want all the power to be with them, all the power to be with the government as opposed to serving. But guess what? Christ is not that way. He serves. He willingly serves. He lovingly serves. He savingly serves to the glory of the Father. And we see this picture in Nehemiah. He worked alongside the people. He didn't lord his authority over them, as Jesus said in that passage, like the Gentile rulers do, like the heathens do. Y'all know people who want to let you know that they're the boss, that they're in charge, that they're over you, that you have to answer to me. You all know people like that on your job. Well, guess what? There's someone greater than them. There's someone mightier than them. There's someone who can snap their finger and they can drop dead just like that. There's someone that they're going to have to give an account to. Someone who is higher than them. Someone who is more infinitely worthy than they are. Someone who actually created them. Yeah, they may lord their authority. They may boss people around. But guess what? That's nothing. They're going to have to give an account for that before the Lord. Don't you thank God that we have a Savior who serves us? And he does it faithfully. He didn't lord it over us. And that's what we see in Nehemiah. Amen. Three applications in short right here. One, fear God and give him glory. Fear God. We talked about what that means. We fleshed that out, what it means to fear God. Fear God and give him glory in everything we do and how we love and serve each other. We fear God. We worship him. Don't fear man, fear God. The Bible tells us 
the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. It keeps you in bondage. Fear God and obey him. We fear God, guess what? We'll obey him. We, and we, we're not obeying him as if, oh, he's going to strike us down or whatever. No, we obey God because we love him. We want to please God. We want to be pleasing to him. And because obeying God is always right. You do things God's way, guess what? You'll get better results. Then, lastly, fear God and do what? Serve others. Serve. Don't look to be served, but to do what? To serve. To be a blessing to other people. Look for ways to serve others. Look for ways to serve your church. Serve people in your church. Other believers. Look for ways to encourage other believers. To serve them. If everyone sits around and waits on someone else to serve them, then guess what? No one will be served. <laughs> Nobody. Everybody sitting around waiting. No. You serve. Because you fear God, you serve. Amen? Let us pray as we close out this message. Father, thank you. You're so gracious. We see in Nehemiah, Christ, as the servant of your people. Lord, we see what it means to fear you and what it does, what fear you brings about, the fruit that it does. We don't use our brothers and sisters in Christ, but rather we, we love them and we serve them. Father, I thank you. We see the compassion of Nehemiah and we see that ultimately in you and how you had compassion on us as as sinners, but we could not possibly save ourselves from the bondage of sin, but uh, Father, the Lord Jesus came to pay our sin debt, to free us from the bondage and tyranny of sin, and to give us that new life in Christ. Father, thank you for your word this morning. May you use it to encourage the faithful and to call and bring sinners to repentance. In Christ's name I pray, amen.